0: Psalm nineteen of the Treasury of David. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Treasury of David, Volume One by Charles Spurgeon. Psalm nineteen. Subject. It would be idle to inquire into the particular period when this delightful poem was composed for there is nothing in its title or subject to assist us in the inquiry. The heading, To the Chief Musician, A Psalm of David, informs us that David wrote it, and that it was committed to the master of the service of song in the sanctuary, for the use of the assembled worshippers. In his earliest days the psalmist, while keeping his father's flock, had devoted himself to the study of God's two great books, Nature and Scripture. AND HE HAD SO THOROUGHLY ENTERED INTO THE SPIRIT OF THESE TWO ONLY VOLUMES IN HIS LIBRARY, THAT HE WAS ABLE WITH A DEVOUT CRITICISM TO COMPARE AND CONTRAST THEM, MAGNIFYING THE EXCELLENCY OF THE AUTHOR AS SEEN IN BOTH. HOW FOOLISH AND WICKED ARE THOSE WHO, INSTEAD OF ACCEPTING THE TWO SACRED TOMES, AND DELIGHTING TO BEHOLD THE SAME DIVINE HAND IN EACH, SPEND ALL THEIR WITS IN ENDEAVORING TO FIND discrepancies AND CONTRADICTIONS. WE MAY REST assured THAT THE TRUE VESTIGES OF CREATION WILL NEVER CONTRADICT GENESIS, NOR WILL A CORRECT COSMOS BE FOUND AT VARIANCE WITH THE NARRATIVE OF MOSES. HE IS WISEST WHO READS BOTH THE WORLD-BOOK AND THE WORD-BOOK AS TWO VOLUMES OF THE SAME WORK, AND FEELS CONCERNING THEM, MY FATHER WROTE THEM BOTH. DIVISION THIS SONG VERY DISTINCTLY DIVIDES ITSELF INTO THREE PARTS. Very well described by the translators in the ordinary headings of our version. The creatures show God's glory, 1 to 6. The Word showeth His grace, 7 to 11. David prayeth for grace, 12 to 14. Thus praise and prayer are mingled, and he who here sings the work of God in the world without, pleads for a work of grace in himself within. EXPOSITION VERSES 1-6 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech, nor language, where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hidden from the heat thereof. Verse 1 The heavens declare the glory of God. The book of nature has three leaves heaven earth and sea of which heaven is the first and the most glorious and by its aid we are able to see the beauties of the other two any book without its first page would be sadly imperfect and especially the great natural bible since its first pages the sun moon and stars supply light to the rest of the volume and are thus the keys without which the writing which follows would be dark and undiscerned. Man walking erect was evidently made to scan the skies, and he who begins to read creation by studying the stars begins the book at the right place. The heavens are plural for their variety, comprising the watery heavens with their clouds of countless forms, the aerial heavens with their calms and tempests, the solar heavens with all the glories of the day, and the starry heavens with all the marvels of the night. What the heaven of heavens must be hath not entered into the heart of man, but there in chief all things are telling the glory of God. Any part of creation has more instruction in it than human mind will ever exhaust, but the celestial realm is peculiarly rich in spiritual lore. The heavens declare or are, declaring, for the continuance of their testimony is intended by the participles employed. Every moment of God's existence, power, wisdom, and goodness are being sounded abroad by the heavenly heralds which shine upon us from above. He who would guess at divine sublimity should gaze upward into the starry vault. He who would imagine infinity must peer into the boundless expanse. He who desires to see divine wisdom should consider the balancing of the orbs. He who would know divine fidelity must mark the regularity of the planetary motions, and he who would attain some conceptions of divine power, greatness, and majesty must estimate the forces of attraction, the magnitude of the fixed stars, and the brightness of the whole celestial train. It is not merely glory that the heavens declare, but the glory of God, for they deliver to us such unanswerable arguments for a conscious, intelligent, planning, controlling, and presiding Creator, that no unprejudiced person can remain unconvinced by them. The testimony given by the heavens is no mere hint, but a plain, unmistakable declaration, and it is a declaration of the most constant and abiding kind. Yet, for all this, To what avail is the loudest declaration to a deaf man, or the clearest showing to one spiritually blind? God the Holy Ghost must illumine us, or all the suns in the Milky Way never will. The firmament showeth his handiwork. Not handy in the vulgar use of that term, but hand-work. The expanse is full of the works of the Lord's skillful, creating hands hands being attributed to the great creating spirit to set forth his care and workmanlike action, and to meet the poor comprehension of mortals. It is humbling to find that even when the most devout and elevated minds are desirous to express their loftiest thoughts of God, they must use words and metaphors drawn from the earth. We are children, and must each confess, I think as a child, I speak as a child, In the expanse above us God flies, as it were, his starry flag, to show that the king is at home, and hangs out his escutcheon, that atheists may see how he despises their denunciations of him. He who looks up to the firmament and then writes himself down an atheist, brands himself at the same moment as an idiot or a liar. Strange is it that some who love God are yet afraid to study the God-declaring book of nature. The mock spirituality of some believers, who are too heavenly to consider the heavens, has given color to the vaunts of infidels that nature contradicts revelation. The wisest of men are those who with pious eagerness trace the goings forth of Jehovah as well in creation as in grace. Only the foolish have any fears lest the honest study of the one should injure our faith in the other. Dr. McCosh has well said, We have often mourned over the attempts made to set the works of God against the word of God, and thereby excite, propagate, and perpetuate jealousies fitted to separate parties that ought to live in closest union. In particular, we have always regretted that endeavors should have been made to depreciate nature with a view of exalting revelation. It has always appeared to us to be nothing else than the degrading of one part of God's works in the hope thereby of exalting and recommending another. Let not science and religion be reckoned as opposing citadels, frowning defiance upon each other, and their troops brandishing their armor in hostile attitude. They have too many common foes, if they would but think of it, in ignorance and prejudice, in passion and vice, under all their forms, to admit of their lawfully wasting their strength in a useless warfare with each other. Science has a foundation, and so they will be two compartments of one great fabric reared to the glory of God. Let the one be the outer, and the other the inner court. In the one let all look, and admire, and adore. And in the other, let those who have faith kneel, and pray, and praise. Let the one be the sanctuary where human learning may present its richest incense as an offering to God, and the other the holiest of all. Separated from it by a veil now rent in twain, and in which, on a blood sprinkled mercy seat, we pour out the love of a reconciled heart and hear the oracles of the living God. Verse two, day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. As if one day took up the story where the other left it, and each night passed over the wondrous tale to the next. The original has in it the thought of pouring out, or welling over, with speech, as though days and nights were but a fountain flowing evermore with Jehovah's praise. Oh, to drink often at the celestial well, and learn to utter the glory of God! The witnesses above cannot be slain or silenced. From their elevated seats they constantly preach the knowledge of God, unawed and unbiased by the judgments of men. Even the changes of alternating night and day are mutely eloquent, and light and shade equally reveal the invisible one. Let the vicissitudes of our circumstances do the same, and while we bless the God of our days of joy, let us also extol him who giveth songs in the night. The lesson of day and night is one which it were well if all men learned. It should be among our day thoughts and night thoughts to remember the flight of time, the changeful character of earthly things, The brevity both of joy and sorrow, the preciousness of life, our utter powerlessness to recall the hours once flown, and the irresistible approach of eternity. Day bids us labor, night reminds us to prepare for our last home. Day bids us work for God, and night invites us to rest in Him. Day bids us look for endless day, and night warns us to escape from everlasting night. Verse 3 There is no speech nor language, where their voice is not heard. Every man may hear the voice of the stars. Many are the languages of terrestrials. To celestials there is but one, and that one may be understood by every willing mind. The lowest heathen are without excuse, if they do not discover the invisible things of God in the works which he has made. Sun, moon, and stars are God's traveling preachers. They are apostles upon their journey confirming those who regard the Lord, and judges on circuit condemning those who worship idols. The margin gives us another rendering, which is more literal, and involves less repetition. No speech, no words, their voice is not heard. That is to say, their teaching is not addressed to the ear, and is not uttered in articulate sounds. It is pictorial and directed to the eye and heart. It touches not the sense by which faith comes, for faith cometh by hearing. Jesus Christ is called the Word, for He is a far more distinct display of Godhead than all the heavens can afford. They are, after all, but dumb instructors. Neither star nor sun can arrive at a word, but Jesus is the express image of Jehovah's person, and His name is the Word of God verse four their line is gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world although the heavenly bodies move in solemn silence yet in reason's ear they utter precious teachings they give forth no literal words but yet their instruction is clear enough to be so described horne says that the phrase employed indicates a language of signs and thus we are told that the heavens speak by their significant actions and operations. Nature's words are like those of the deaf and dumb, but grace tells us plainly of the Father. By their line is probably meant the measure of their domain which, together with their testimony, has gone out to the utmost end of the habitable earth. No man living beneath the copse of heaven dwells beyond the bounds of the diocese of God's court preachers, it is easy to escape from the light of ministers, who are as stars in the right hand of the Son of Man. But even then men, with a conscience yet unseared, will find a Nathan to accuse them, a Jonah to warn them, and an Elijah to threaten them in the silent stars of night. To gracious souls the voices of the heavens are more influential far. They feel the sweet influence of the Pleiades, AND ARE DRAWN TOWARDS THEIR FATHER BY THE BRIGHT BANDS OF ORION. IN THEM HATH HE SET A TABERNACLE FOR THE SUN. IN THE MIDST OF THE HEAVENS THE SUN ENCAMPS, AND MARCHES LIKE A MIGHTY MONARCH ON HIS GLORIOUS WAY. HE HAS NO FIXED ABODE, BUT AS A TRAVELER PITCHES AND REMOVES HIS TENT, A TENT WHICH WILL SOON BE TAKEN DOWN AND ROLLED TOGETHER AS A SCROLL. AS THE ROYAL PAVILION STOOD IN THE CENTER OF THE HOST, so the sun in his place appears like a king in the midst of attendant stars verse five which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber a bridegroom comes forth sumptuously apparelled his face beaming with a joy which he imparts to all around such but with a mighty emphasis is the rising sun and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. As a champion girt for running cheerfully addresses himself to the race, so does the sun speed onward with matchless regularity and unwearying swiftness in his appointed orbit. It is but mere play to him. There are no signs of effort, flagging, or exhaustion. No other creature yields such joy to the earth as her bridegroom the sun, and none whether they be horse or eagle, can for an instant compare in swiftness with that heavenly champion. But all his glory is but the glory of God, even the sun shines in light borrowed from the great Father of lights. Thou, Son, of this great world both eye and soul, acknowledge him thy greater, sound his praise, both when thou climbest, and when high noon hast gained, and when thou fallest, Verse 6. His going forth is from the ends of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it. He bears his light to the boundaries of the solar heavens, traversing the zodiac with steady motion, denying his light to none who dwell within his range. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Above beneath around the heat of the sun exercises an influence the bowels of the earth are stored with the ancient produce of the solar rays and even yet earth's inmost caverns feel their power where light is shut out yet heat and other more subtle influences find their way there is no doubt a parallel intended to be drawn between the heaven of grace and the heaven of nature god's way of grace is sublime and broad and full of his glory In all its displays it is to be admired and studied with diligence. Both its lights and its shades are instructive. It has been proclaimed, in a measure, to every people, and in due time shall be yet more completely published to the ends of the earth. Jesus, like a sun, dwells in the midst of revelation, tabernacling among men in all his brightness, rejoicing as the bridegroom of his church to reveal himself to men, and, like a champion, to win unto himself renown. He makes a circuit of mercy, blessing the remotest corners of the earth, and there are no seeking souls, however degraded and depraved, who shall be denied the comfortable warmth and benediction of his love. Even death shall feel the power of his presence, and resign the bodies of the saints, and this fallen earth shall be restored to its pristine glory. Verses seven to eleven. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring for ever. The judgments of the Lord are true, and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. In the three following verses we have a brief but instructive hexapla containing six descriptive titles of the word, six characteristic qualities mentioned, and six divine effects declared. Names, nature, and effect are well set forth. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, by which he means not merely the law of Moses, but the doctrines of God, the whole run and rule of sacred writ. The doctrines revealed by God he declares to be perfect, and yet David had but a very small part of the scriptures, and that the darkest and most historical portion be perfect, what must the entire volume be? How more than perfect is the book which contains the clearest possible display of divine love, and gives us an open vision of redeeming grace? The gospel is a complete scheme of law or gracious salvation, presenting to the needy sinner everything that his terrible necessities can possibly demand. There are no redundancies and no omissions in the word of God. And in the plan of grace, why then do men try to paint this lily and gild this refined gold? The gospel is perfect in all its parts, and perfect as a whole. It is a crime to add to it, treason to alter it, and felony to take from it. CONVERTING THE SOUL making the man to be returned or restored to the place from which sin had cast him the practical effect of the word of god is to turn the man to himself to his god and to holiness and the turn or conversion is not outward alone the soul is moved and renewed the great means of the conversion of sinners is the word of god and the more closely we keep to it in our ministry the more likely we are to be successful it is god's word rather than man's comment on God's word, which is made mighty with souls. When the law drives and the gospel draws, the action is different, but the end is one. For by God's spirit the soul is made to yield, and cries, Turn me, and I shall be turned. Try men's depraved nature with philosophy and reasoning, and it laughs at your efforts to scorn. But the word of God soon works a transformation. The testimony of the Lord is sure. God bears his testimony against sin and on behalf of righteousness. He testifies of our fall and of our restoration. This testimony is plain, decided, and infallible, and it is to be accepted as sure. God's witness in his word is so sure that we may draw solid comfort from it both for time and eternity, and so sure that no attacks made upon it however fierce or subtle, can ever weaken its force. What a blessing that in a world of uncertainties we have something sure to rest upon! We hasten from the quicksands of human speculations to the terra firma of divine revelation. MAKING WISE THE SIMPLE Humble, candid, teachable minds receive the word and are made wise unto salvation. Things hidden from the wise and prudent are revealed unto babes. The persuadable grow wise, but the cavaliers continue fools. As a law or plan, the word of God converts, and then as a testimony it instructs. It is not enough for us to be converts. We must continue to be disciples. And if we have felt the power of truth, we must go on to prove its certainty by experience. The perfection of the gospel converts, but its sureness edifies. If we would be edified, it becomes us not to stagger at the promise through unbelief, for a doubted gospel cannot make us wise, but truth of which we are assured will be our establishment. Verse 8 The statutes of the Lord are right. His precepts and decrees are founded in righteousness, and are such as are right or fitted to the right reason of man. As a physician gives the right medicine, and a counselor the right advice, so does the Book of God. REJOICING THE HEART Mark the progress. He who was converted was next made wise, and is now made happy. That truth which makes the heart right then gives joy to the right heart. Free grace brings heart joy earth-born mirth dwells on the lip and flushes the bodily powers but heavenly delights satisfy the inner nature and fill the mental faculties to the brim there is no cordial of comfort like that which is poured from the bottle of scripture retire and read thy bible to be gay the commandment of the lord is pure no mixture of error defiles it No stain of sin pollutes it. It is the unadorned milk, the undiluted wine. ENLIGHTENING THE EYES Purging away by its own purity the earthly grossness which mars the intellectual discernment. Whether the eye be dim with sorrow or with sin, the scripture is a skillful oculist and makes the eye clear and bright. Look at the sun and it puts out your eyes. Look at the more than sunlight of Revelation, and it enlightens them. The purity of snow causes snow-blindness to the alpine traveller, but the purity of God's truth has the contrary effect, and cures the natural blindness of the soul. It is well again to observe the gradation. The convert became a disciple, and next, a rejoicing soul. He now obtains a discerning eye, and as a spiritual man discerneth all things though he himself is discerned of no man. Verse 9 The Fear of the Lord is Clean The doctrine of truth is here described by its spiritual effect, viz., inward piety, or the fear of the Lord. This is clean in itself, and cleanses out the love of sin, sanctifying the heart in which it reigns. Mr. Godly Fear is never satisfied till every street, lane and alley, yea, and every house and every corner of the town of Mansoul, is clean rid of the diabolonians who lurk therein. Enduring for ever. Filth brings decay, but cleanness is the great foe of corruption. The grace of God in the heart being a pure principle, is also an abiding and incorruptible principle, which may be crushed for a time, but cannot be utterly destroyed. Both in the word and in the heart, when the Lord writes, he says with Pilate, What I have written, I have written. He will make no erasures himself, much less suffer others to do so. The revealed will of God is never changed. Even Jesus came not to destroy, but to fulfill, and even the ceremonial law was only changed as to its shadow, the substance intended by it, is eternal. WHEN THE GOVERNMENTS OF NATIONS ARE SHAKEN WITH REVOLUTION, AND ANCIENT CONSTITUTIONS ARE BEING REPEALED, IT IS COMFORTING TO KNOW THAT THE THRONE OF GOD IS UNSHAKEN, AND HIS LAW UNALTERED. THE JUDGMENTS OF THE LORD ARE TRUE AND RIGHTEOUS ALTOGETHER. JOINTLY AND SEVERALLY, THE WORDS OF THE LORD ARE TRUE. THAT WHICH IS GOOD IN DETAIL IS EXCELLENT IN THE MASS. No exception may be taken to a single clause separately, or to the book as a whole. God's judgments, all of them together, or each of them apart, are manifestly just, and need no laborious excuses to justify them. The judicial decisions of Jehovah, as revealed in the law, or illustrated in the history of his providence, are truth itself, and commend themselves to every truthful mind. Not only is their power invincible, but their justice is unimpeachable. Verse 10 More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Bible truth is enriching to the soul in the highest degree. The metaphor is one which gathers force as it is brought out. Gold, fine gold, much fine gold. It is good, better, best, and therefore it is not only to be desired with a miser's avidity, but with more than that. A spiritual treasure is more noble than mere material wealth, so should it be desired and sought after with greater eagerness. Men speak of solid gold, but what is so solid as solid truth? For love of gold pleasure is forsworn, ease renounced, and life endangered. Shall we not be ready to do as much for love of truth? SWEETER ALSO THAN HONEY AND THE honeycomb. TRAPP SAYS, OLD PEOPLE ARE ALL FOR PROFIT, THE YOUNG FOR PLEASURE. HERE'S GOLD FOR THE ONE, YEA FINEST GOLD IN GREAT QUANTITY. HERE'S HONEY FOR THE OTHER, YEA, LIVE HONEY DRIPPING FROM THE COMB. THE PLEASURES ARISING FROM A RIGHT UNDERSTANDING OF THE DIVINE TESTIMONIES ARE OF THE MOST DELIGHTFUL ORDER. Earthly enjoyments are utterly contemptible if compared with them. The sweetest joys, yea, the sweetest of the sweetest, falls to his portion who has God's truth to be his heritage. Verse 11 Moreover, by them is thy servant warned. We are warned by the word both of our duty, our danger, and our remedy. On the sea of life there would be many more wrecks, if it were not for the divine storm signals, which give to the watchful a timely warning. The Bible should be our mentor, our monitor, our memento mori, our remembrancer, and the keeper of our conscience. Alas that so few men will take the warning so graciously given. None but servants of God will do so, for they alone regard their master's will. Servants of God not only find his service delightful in itself, but they receive good recompense. IN KEEPING OF THEM THERE IS GREAT REWARD. THERE IS A WAGE, AND A GREAT ONE. THOUGH WE EARN NO WAGES OF DEBT, WE WIN GREAT WAGES OF GRACE. SAINTS MAY BE LOSERS FOR A TIME, BUT THEY SHALL BE GLORIOUS GAINERS IN THE LONG RUN, AND EVEN NOW A QUIET CONSCIENCE IS IN ITSELF NO SLENDER REWARD FOR OBEDIENCE. HE WHO WEARS THE HERB CALLED heartsease IN HIS BOSOM IS TRULY BLESSED. HOWEVER THE MAIN REWARD IS YET TO COME, And the word here used hints as much for it signifies the heel as if the reward would come to us at the end of life when the work was done not while the labor was in the hand but when it was gone and we could not see the heel of it oh the glory yet to be revealed it is enough to make a man faint for joy at the prospect of it our light affliction which is but for a moment is not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Then we shall know the value of the scriptures when we swim in that sea of unutterable delight to which their streams will bear us if we commit ourselves to them. Verses 12-14 to 14. Who can discern his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth, and the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Verse 12 Who can understand his errors? A question which is its own answer. It rather requires a note of exclamation than of interrogation. By the law is the knowledge of sin, and in the presence of divine truth, the psalmist marvels at the number and heinousness of his sins. He best knows himself who best knows the word. But even such a one will be in a maze of wonder as to what he does not know, rather than on the mount of congratulation as to what he does know. We have heard of a comedy of errors, But to a good man this is more like a tragedy. Many books have a few lines of errata at the end, but our errata might well be as large as the volume if we could but have sense enough to see them. Augustine wrote in his older days a series of retractions. Ours might make a library if we had enough grace to be convinced of our mistakes and to confess them. Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Thou canst mark in me faults entirely hidden from myself. It were hopeless to expect to see all my spots. Therefore, O Lord, wash away in the atoning blood even those sins which my conscience has been unable to detect. Secret sins, like private conspirators, must be hunted out, or they may do deadly mischief. It is well to be much in prayer concerning them. In the Lateran Council of the Church of Rome, A decree was passed that every true believer must confess his sins, all of them, once in a year to the priest, and they affixed to it this declaration, that there is no hope of pardon but in complying with that decree. What can equal the absurdity of such a decree as that? Do they suppose that they can tell their sins as easily as they can count their fingers? Why, if we could receive pardon for all our sins by telling every sin we have committed in one hour— There is not one of us who would be able to enter heaven since besides the sins that are known to us and that we may be able to confess, there are a vast mass of sins which are as truly sins as those which we lament, but which are secret and come not beneath our eye. If we had eyes like those of God, we should think very differently of ourselves. The transgressions which we see and confess are but like the farmer's small samples which he brings to market when he has left his granary full at home. We have but a very few sins which we can observe and detect, compared with those which are hidden from ourselves and unseen by our fellow-creatures. Verse 13 Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. This earnest and humble prayer teaches us that saints may fall into the worst of sins unless restrained by grace, and that therefore they must watch and pray lest they enter into temptation. There is a natural proneness to sin in the best of men, and they must be held back as a horse is held back by the bit, or they will run into it. Presumptuous sins are peculiarly dangerous. All sins are great sins, yet some sins are greater than others. Every sin has in it the very venom of rebellion, and is full of the essential marrow of traitorous rejection of God. But there be some sins which have in them a greater development of the essential mischief of rebellion, and which wear upon their faces more of the brazen pride which defies the Most High. It is wrong to suppose that because all sins will condemn us, that therefore one sin is not greater than another. The fact is that while all transgression is a greatly grievous and sinful thing, yet there are some transgressions which have a deeper shade of blackness and a more double scarlet-dyed hue of criminality than others. The presumptuous sins of our text are the chief and worst of all sins. They rank head and foremost in the list of iniquities. It is remarkable that though an atonement was provided under the Jewish law for every kind of sin, there was this one exception, but the soul that sinneth presumptuously shall have no atonement, it shall be cut off from the midst of my people and now under the christian dispensation, although in the sacrifice of our blessed lord there is a great and precious atonement for presumptuous sins whereby sinners who have erred in this manner are made clean, yet without doubt presumptuous sinners Dying without pardon, must expect to receive a double portion of the wrath of God, and a more terrible portion of eternal punishment in the pit that is digged for the wicked. For this reason is David so anxious that he may never come under the reigning power of these giant evils. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. He shudders at the thought of the unpardonable sin, Secret sin is a stepping-stone to presumptuous sin, and that is the vestibule of the sin which is unto death. He who is not willful in his sin will be in a fair way to be innocent so far as poor sinful man can be. But he who tempts the devil to tempt him is in a path which will lead him from bad to worse, and from the worse to the worst. Verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. A sweet prayer, and so spiritual that it is almost as commonly used in Christian worship as the apostolic benediction. Words of the mouth are mockery if the heart does not meditate. The shell is nothing without the kernel. But both together are useless unless accepted, and even if accepted by man, it is all vanity if not accepted in the sight of God. We must in prayer view Jehovah as our strength enabling and our Redeemer saving, or we shall not pray aright, and it is well to feel our personal interest so as to use the word my, or our prayers will be hindered. Our near kinsman's name, our goal, or Redeemer, makes a blessed ending to the psalm. It began with the heavens, but it ends with him whose glory fills heaven and earth. Blessed kinsman, give us now to meditate acceptably upon thy most sweet love and tenderness. End of Psalm 19